oftentimes when we think about diversity, um, it's very easy to sort of look at diversity on the outside, um, but we really have to sort of go even deep and start asking ourselves, um, who is missing? The Ethicist Corner, brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. Hi, welcome everybody to The Ethicist Corner, a podcast in which we discuss ethics in everyday life. My guests today are Dr. Sharon Akonkwo-Holmes and Dr. Katina Ade-Kanedu. Dr. Akonkwo-Holmes works at the Panorama City Medical Center uh, here in California, where she cares for patients living in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, Dr. Akonkwo-Holmes also serves as her medical center's equity, inclusion, and diversity physician champion and language concordance physician champion. I hope we get to talk about those things a little bit going forward too. And Dr. Ade Kanedu is currently a physician and fellow of maternal fetal medicine at Duke University Medical School. Uh, She's received numerous awards and honors in her career and has presented on the impact of imposter syndrome in training and careers in medicine, which is a topic that's relevant for us today, amongst many other topics. Both Dr. Akankwa Holmes and Dr. Ade Kanedu, along with Dr. Keisha Ray, will be joining the Kegney Institute uh, and Kaiser Permanente on February 16th at 6 p.m. Pacific for a panel titled Race, Gender, and Bias in Medicine, Experiences and Insights. This event is free and open to all via Zoom, and we, we really hope you can join us. Um, I'm also joined today by a special guest interviewer and our Kegley Institute of Ethics student fellow, Brittany Johnson, who will be moderating uh, our February 16th event and joining me today and asking some questions of our, our guests. So welcome everybody to the Ethicist Corner. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Yeah, happy Thank you so much. Sure, sure. Uh, so just to start out, um, uh, you know, kind of a, just a background question. Could you both maybe talk about how you got into medicine as a career and, and what drew you to this line of work? And Dr. Conquo, could we, could we start with you on that question? Sure, absolutely. Um, I think if you ask most doctors um, how they got into medicine, you'll get one of two answers. One will be that I've known that I want to be a doctor since age X um, for reason Y, and others will say they sort of stumbled upon it maybe late college, um, early grad school doing something else. But for me, it was the former. I, I've known that I wanted to be a doctor since age six. After giving it much thought and maybe even having a lot of therapy, I realized that it was because at age six, I lost my mother to a car accident um, in uh, she in Nigeria, where um, wonderful things like blood, blood banking products and um, ambulances and ICUs um, are something that, that are not readily available. She died in a car accident and I was six years old. And so I'm confident that had definitely some influence on why I've always said I want to be a doctor since I was six years old. And as I've matured and sort of growing up in South Central Los Angeles, I could see very much that being a doctor was something that would allow me to navigate the world of underserved communities in, in a way that allowed me to have the, the expertise um, to bring all of who I am um, into these spaces. I think that's what started it for me. Well, thank you so much. And Dr. Ade Canedo, how about you? Yeah, so I grew up in a, a really small town on the coast of Georgia and I was raised by my grandparents and actually thought I was gonna do something in the field of archeology. span I really was fascinated um, as a preteen in Greek and Roman mythology um, and in archeology span and read everything I can get my hands on on the subject. Um, and I remember my grandparents had a dinner party um, and I was 12 years old and someone asked, what do you wanna do when you grow up? And I said, I wanna be an archeologist. Um, and my grandmother said, no, you're gonna be a doctor. 
And I was like, oh, I wasn't really thinking about that. But interestingly, um, when I went to college, I started thinking about medicine. And there was this wonderful um, externship called the Hebrew Scholars Program at Agnes Scott College. It's a private women's college in the South. Um, and one of my friends that I grew up with in high school did a lot of HIV AIDS work and had established a nonprofit organization in high school. And we worked a lot together um, you know, in her organization. And she went to Agnes Scott and she was kind of like a peer mentor to me. And I followed her to Agnes Scott. And she got this award um, and went to South Africa to do some work, HIV AIDS work. And the next year I got the award and I went to Tanzania. And um, at the time when I was working in Arusha, Tanzania, there was about one in four people HIV positive at the time. Um, and it was just overwhelming and devastating the community there. Um, and I taught a lot in the Maasai Community Center. We'd have to hike up every day. Um, and from there, I started thinking about like combining um, medicine and science. I felt that you know, the problem was so you know, overwhelming. There was only so much I can do as one person in the community. But if I discovered you know, a new therapeutic or vaccine, I could touch lives I could never encounter. Um, and I always like to tell you know, my mentees or college students that you, know, you have the World Wide Web at your fingertips. And every single summer that you're in college, you should be doing something with your summers. Um, and so I came back to school and I said, you know what, I'm going to apply to do research somewhere the following summer. And I was awarded this T35 NIH grant um, and did a summer of research in an HIV lab at University of Massachusetts. And I was sold. Um, and so from there, I decided I was going to, you know, pursue an MD PhD um, and do HIV AIDS research. I did that in, in medical school and graduate school, but actually just ended up doing research in um, women's health and um, preeclampsia. What do you see as your greatest accomplishment in your career thus far? And Dr. Ade Kanadu, we will start with you. Um, yeah, of course. Um, so I would say, um, interestingly, when I was in college and I had all this, you know, experience and I got these scholarships and awards and, you know, thought I was on, was going to move forward on this path of medicine and science. And I remember speaking to my, um, my academic provisor, um, advisor in college. And I said, you know, I'm thinking about going to medical school. And this particular advisor told me, well, you know, I, I don't know if you'll be a good candidate for medical school. And I thought, okay, well, um, what about a PhD? I, I really like science. I really enjoy, you know, the wet bench. I said, no, you know, I don't think that's a great field for you either. And I said, what about a master's? You know, maybe I can do a master's. Um, he said, no, I don't think you should consider um, science or medicine. And I said, okay, well, the following year, I applied um, for medical school and got into several medical, um, into several MD programs. Um, and as I was in medical school, I connected with the PI that I would eventually be as my advisor in graduate school and um, did research that summer, the first year of medical school. And he said, you know, you really have a gift um, for science, I think you should pursue a PhD. And so at Morehouse School of Medicine, I became the second student ever to be enrolled in the MD PhD program. And subsequently also ended up doing a master's as well and became the first person to graduate from Morehouse School of Medicine with three degrees simultaneously. Mm. Um, and so I always tell like um, people I mentor, you know, it's 
important to get advice, but always kind of think about that advice and see if it really is applicable to you. Dr. Nkwanko Holmes, how about you? I think most proud accomplishment was how, how I was able to lean into 2020. So we know that 2020 was such a challenging year to say the least um, with the murder of George Floyd, um, with all of the uprisings that followed, the xenophobia and racial profiling of Asian Americans. Um, I will say that um, I recognize it was a very divisive time in our, in our country, but even at my medical center, um, and we really needed to find a way to help people understand um, why some people were so hurt and so angry and really be able to, in an inclusive manner, meet people where they were um, if all they wanted to do was listen and lean in to understand. So I think that what made 2020 very impactful for me was that um, I used and harnessed the energy of everyone around me and all of those emotions to try to build bridges um, that didn't divide, divide us on campus, but in fact united us. Mm -hmm. And I did so by um, really seeking the perspectives of everyone, right, and what they were experiencing. And um, what I found was that um, for some, there was this sort of deep anger, right, deep anger concerning the looting of property and the persistent disruptive protests in America. And for others, there was this depression very dep deep depression, deep visceral disdain, you know, by the looting and destruction on black bodies. Um, and then for others, you know, there was this sort of deep yearning for equal application of law and order. Um, and then there were many who just had a paralysis and exhaustion when trying to make sense of it all. Um, and then there were some who just had a deep fear of any change whatsoever because the world as they knew it was quite frankly quite good and they didn't want anything to change. Um, and yet still some had serenity and hope um, that equitable change was on the horizon as a result of all that had gone down. Um, and so as an EID physician champion, I recognize that my, my, my work really is to appreciate the rich diversity and thoughts of all those around me. And really to kind of lean in and say, how can we use all that's happening to um, provide better care for our members, to show up as better doctors, to be better colleagues for one another during this painful time, and to um, support one another. Um, and so that became really my work in 2020. Thank you so much. And that, that kind of leads into the, the next question. Um, you know, so our event on the 16th of February is going to focus in part on bias in medicine. What do you see as the main forms or maybe most impactful forms that bias takes in the medical field um, in your experience or from your research. And uh, Dr. Okonkwo, maybe we could stick with you to start for this question. Okay, thank you so much. You know, when I think about bias medicine, I first begin by just thinking about the fact that because we all have a brain and we all have a bias, um, it, it begins by just A, as a physician, um, encouraging all physicians, including myself, to really begin to examine our biases. And there's no way we can examine our biases without knowing what they are. So after taking several Harvard implicit association tests, I learned quickly what those biases were. And it, trust me, it really shocked me to find out how many biases I had and what they were. Um, but the information I gained was really important because what I do now is um, when those, when I encounter those things, which are biases for me. I have a practice of trying to stop, right? Really sort of um, lean into the discomfort that I'm feeling around 
whatever it is that's triggering me and and then try and um, really examine where it's coming from and then maybe perhaps refute it if it isn't uh, valid. Um, so in medicine, we know that bias shows up um, specifically with some people of color and the research has shown us that um, most medical students um, think that uh, there was a study done in University of Virginia that showed that medical students perceived and thought that black patients felt pain um, less than white patients did because their skin was um, in fact thicker. Um, and what does this show up? How does this show up in medicine? Well, it shows up um, where most physicians um, are more reluctant to provide um, opiates um, to people of color, specifically to um, black members. And I've seen this um, in my own practice. I've seen it in my own, um, you know, in, in, in my own um, medical center. Um, I myself have been um, guilty of doing this um, because we think that we are, we think that knowing is enough and it's not true. Um, knowing is not enough. Um, examining bias, um, really really asks us to stop and question our practices um unfortunately historically you know embedded in society are these biases these deeply ingrained biases um, that teach us who are drug seeking and who is not as we can see the opiate epidemic is now um vastly destroying communities that are not black communities um, because that bias exists um, right here in medicine with my colleagues. Um, so I would say that that's, that's, that's one example. That's helpful, thank you. Um, so Dr. Uh, Dr. Ade Kanedu, I, I was gonna ask if, if you could maybe following up on that, um, in your experience, are there effective strategies? I mean, maybe thinking about some of the things that Dr. Konko is talking about or your own experience for confronting bias in medicine? Um, are there things that you've experienced in your own career or that you keep in mind, whether interpersonally or, or structurally? Like, how do, you, how do you think about responding to these types of problems? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, you know, being a maternal, maternal fetal medicine fellow and working on labor and delivery, um, labor and delivery is a place where, you know, it's high acuity, um, but things change very rapidly. Um, it's a very stressful environment. Um, it can become very emotional. Um, and I think because of that, like sometimes it can, you know, bring out the worst in our, our characters because we're just all stressed. Um, and I would say, you know, when addressing biases on labor and delivery, you know, one of the things that I've personally experienced um, as a physician of color um, working in that space and you walk into a room and you're one of few physicians of colors that's on the team. Um, and you walk into the room of the patients and their family and you already sense this kind of uneasiness feeling, you know, from the patient and their family. And you sense that. And I think, you know, the best way to approach this and, you know, what I tell my medical students and what I tell residents is, you know, address it by talking about the facts um, and breaking down the pathophysiology. I feel like when you, you know, 
pull up a chair, sit at the bedside and really explain what's happening and really explain um, your medical decision and your rationale. Um, I think that that helps to break through some of those barriers sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I, you know, talk to medical students and residents about is, you know, the repeat back method. Um, and even if, you know, if there's a comment that it, it may not be directed to you, it may be directed to someone, you know, in your circle, but asking, you know, the person to repeat it back. I just want to make sure I understand, you know, is, is this exactly what you're saying? You know, and I want to make sure that that's clear. Um, and I think sometimes that helps a lot because then the person's kind of confronted with their comment or their statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it kind of helps to, to break the ice and to talk about these uncomfortable um, topics and subjects. I think one of the things that we're doing at Duke to really help with that, and I really applaud our leadership um, in our department, is that you know we understand, especially with George Floyd and everything that's happening um, in our society and all the divisiveness, is you know making sure that we have um, implicit bias training and that we have like group discussions as providers together, from physicians to nursing. Um, to, you know, all ancillary staff. And I think that that has been really helpful. Thank you. That's, that's, that is helpful. And, and I, I think we're gonna follow up on that a little bit with, you know, Dr. Conquo and your work as um, equity, inclusion, diversity physician champion with your medical center. And um, can you talk a bit about, you know, the, the significance of promoting diversity in medicine, whether that's in education or with medical professionals or with patients, however you see that work, um, why is that so important? And, you know, maybe what are some of the ways that you instill that and that role that you have on the ground? Sure, absolutely. Thank okay. you so much for the, thank you so much for the question. You know, as the EID physician champion at the Panorama Medical Center in uh, Kaiser Permanente, I often um, talk to um, our groups about the importance of inclusion, really. So when we think about diversity, um, right, so diversity is accidental. Um, you know, right now on this call, we're very diverse. We're diverse in age and gender and ethnicity and um, religious perspectives. Um, um, but um, inclusion has to be intentional, um, which means that everyone seated in this room has the ability to speak up. Um, all viewpoints are welcomed, right, and um, that everyone has and that everyone feels that they belong so that they can bring their, their best selves to, to work. So when I think about um, why inclusion is really important is because in any given workforce, uh, when people feel included, um, they're more engaged, um, they're more productive, and they're more committed to the overall success of your company. Um, the other thing is that neuroimaging has been used to uncover the neural similarities between um, physical pain and social pain. So I talk a lot about inclusion because um, the, the areas in our brain that are responsible for physical pain, um, including the amygdala, uh, the anterior insula, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, um, all of these areas of the brain are activated when people feel excluded. So if you think about any given workplace, um, if people are, yes, your workplace can be diverse, but your workplace has to be included which means that um, all everyone feels as if they, there's this big sense of belonging. And when that happens, um, people bring the best of themselves. And in, the, you know, in, in contrast, when people feel excluded, um, 
they feel social pain um, similar to how being injured. Think a stab, you know, think a, a pinch, think even a, 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 um, a nail, a hammer and a nail leads people to feel physical pain. And so if you would imagine these people don't come to work with the best of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and we know that inclusion is really important because it, um, it, it, um, it mitigates groupthink and overall just makes your teams more intelligent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, oftentimes when we think about diversity, um, it's very easy to sort of look at diversity on the outside, um, but we really have to sort of go even deeper and start asking ourselves, um, who is missing at any given table, asking ourselves, what experience, what voice am I not hearing from? And, and who's missing? Right, well said, yeah, well said. Uh, Brittany, do you want to follow up on that? Yeah, I love that, especially with the asking who's missing at the table. And seeing as it is Black History Month, um, we have historically as Black people had to address, you know, being missing from being absent from that table, the proverbial table. But as we are having our panel in February also, I wanted to say that this is a time for recognizing achievements of African-Americans and their central role in the past and present of this nation. So what is the significance of Black History Month to you personally? And we'll start with Dr. Katina Adair. I think just having, you know, the ability to um, practice medicine and train at the institutions that I've been privileged to train at um, as just a testament to um, my ancestors who um, all the things that they had to go through and struggle through in order for me to, to be where I am today and to achieve the things that I have been, you know, fortunate to achieve today. Um, so I, you know, pay homage to, you know, the physicians, the scientists um, of color um, that came before me that allows, you know, my career to be, you know, possible today. Also, Dr. Katina, I don't think I knew about that, the HIV research that you did early <laughs> on. That's so exciting. That's like so cool because I really just got an email from the Peace Corps about doing um, a stint there, um, actually, um, in the state of the state of Edu, um, actually to go and talk to women and girls about hygiene and like kind of in that vein. So I was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I would strongly encourage you to do it. It was definitely life changing and eye opening, and I don't think I would be um, the physician I am today without that experience. Yeah, my mom, of course, wants me to find something close to home. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would tell you when I um, went to Arusha, I was 18 or 19. Um, so I was very young um, and my grandparents were very nervous about it, but um, it was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Okay. I'll keep that in mind for sure. <laughs> Dr. Kako, did you want to respond to that question too? Sure. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Burroughs. When I look at Dr. Ade Konadu, and I look at myself, I think about the fact that we are the hope and the dream of our ancestors. Mm. You know, I really think, um, first of all, Black History Month for me is always a little bit mel melancholic, right? Mm. It's, it's super saturated with all of these wonderful people, images of them who've now passed away mm. and all of the wonderful things that they've accomplished. Um, if, I, if I think about it, for me, it sort of begins with um, 
um, thinking about those original ancestors um, who were bakers and attorneys and mothers and fathers and clergymen and doctors in their villages and their cities. Um, they were, you know, they were, um, they were presidents and they were um, housewives and homemakers and midwives. And I, I would almost imagine like the four of us um, suddenly being taken away, being abducted. Um, just out of nowhere, maybe even now, we, um, someone comes knocking on our door and mm -hmm. just comes in to your space and my space, to Dr. Adu, Ade Kanadu's space and Brittany's space all at the same time. And um, we're put in shackles and we are taken away. We don't have time to grab anything um, that would be um, comforting for us along the way, nor do we get a chance to say goodbye. Um, for many of us, we um, are separated immediately from our family members. Um, I think about how painful that would be to have to be separated from my two daughters and my husband in an instant. And yet our ancestors did this and they were then put on a ship and many of them didn't, they didn't live. They didn't live, they couldn't, they could not, um, they couldn't withstand the hardships of being on that ship. And for some, they decided I can't and I'm out. I will voluntarily um, leave from this hardship. And for those who did make it um, and through the voyage and arrived in a country, imagine we're now arriving in a country where we don't speak the language and we are now whipped if we try to speak our language, which is English, or if I decide to hold on to my name, um, Sharon, something I've known my whole life, um, Michael, your, your name is now taken away from you. You now belong now belong to a different tribe, you have a different name. And although you are well educated, a professor, you will not do that. In fact, you'll do manual labor. Mm -hmm. And um, Dr. Are Kadu and I will um, also do manual labor. And you know, we will be raped. And we will produce children that do not belong to us, but they do belong to us. And when they are taken away from us, we will still feel that pain. And so I think about um, I think about the beginning of the country, country's history and how it has that sort of like really ugly history. And that makes me sad when I think about Black History Month. But mm -hmm. what gives me hope is, is just the resilience of um, Black people. I think about um, Dr. Charles Drew amongst many um, others who were celebrated um, in in um, Black history because I attended Charles Drew University in, in South Central Los Angeles. And um, this is a man, a research scientist, a surgeon who um, really improved techniques for blood storage and saved thousands of lives during World War II. And then he himself um, bled out um, in a terrible accident at age 45 um, and died. This year, I will be 45. And I think to myself, how do I pay him honor? Um, how do I respect his memory? Um, upon the, the thousands and thousands and thousands of ancestors who came and who worked so diligently so that um, people like um, Dr. Ade Konadu and myself could be physicians mm -hmm. um, today, which yeah. is not something that they ever could do. And I'm um, the, 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 the meaning for me is to show up and be all that I can be today and every day with every member I touch, um, with each of my colleagues who I influence um, to show up and be a courageous leader. Um, I think this is what they would want. And so that's what it means to me. Thank you for that you know, really powerful statement. And um, I hope we can explore some more of those themes on the 16th too. Um, thank you. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah, um, thank you. So we have a tradition in the podcast uh, called the lightning rounds, 
And these are five fun questions. They're meant to be just short answer off the cuff. Okay. About okay. And, uh, and, you know, also your answers might be different tomorrow, you know, so it's okay. like, <laughs> so I, I, this is kind of a, a yeah, fun part of the pod, the whole pod. I love fun. So that's great. So I'm going to, I'm going to let Brittany do the honors here um, and then guide you through the lightning round questions. Uh, Brittany, you want to uh, take us away? Yeah, absolutely. So like Dr. B was saying, um, these are pretty fun questions. Some of the ones we've done in the past was like, what was the last movie you saw and did you like it? Um, so I wanted to keep the spin going on women empowerment and Black History Month. Um, and just like Dr. Conquo was just sharing about how we are our ancestors' wildest dreams, my first question, which will go to you, Dr. Conquo, is what is something you'd like to say to tell your younger self who is just starting out towards where you are now? Mm, I would say, no matter what, I want you to keep going. Very good. That's it. <laughs> Short sweet. I love it. Okay. And then because it's lightning round, we have a bunch of questions. I'm going to give you a different one, Dr. Katina. And that is, what is a personality trait that you had or acquired along your journey that best set you up for succeeding in your chosen field as an MD PhD? I would say emotional intelligence. You know, as I alluded to before, working on labor and delivery, you know, I went to um, uh, HBCU for medical school um, and did my residency at Case. And it was, you know, quite a change. Um, and when we were, um, my incoming intern class, um, it was the first ever in history, but there were three minority women um, selected out of five. Um, and we really had a tough time transitioning our intern year um, and dealt with a lot of you know, discrimination like in that first year. Um, and I struggled a lot. Um, and I think you know, over the years as a resident there, I um, really just kind of took a step back and just really watched the environment um, and just changed the way that I interacted with people. And it's, it's, you know, it's not fair that sometimes you feel like you have to be overly nice. Um, and sometimes we have to do that when you're one of few um, in your area. Um, but I think, you know, just going out of my way to get to know people, um, going out of my way to try to remember the names of everyone on labor and delivery that I interact with and the ancillary staff really um, went a long way. Um, and I remember like being an intern struggling to getting to that fourth year and being well liked by like all the nurses and getting the chair award at the end of the year. And it was the first time a minority um, ever got that award um, in the OBGYN department. Mm -hmm. And I think that was because of emotional intelligence. Lovely. Thank you so much for sharing. Now, this last question is going to be for both of you ladies to answer. Um, and it is, if you had a magic wand and could make one change tomorrow in your community, what would it be? And the community could be the proverbial community or just right around the corner from your house community. <laughs> I would, with my magic wand, um, I would make all of my um, neighbors and everyone with a human brain, which would be just about all of us, um, I, would, I would have them think like nature does. And if I, I can explain this by um, just reciting a little poem that I wrote, which was, you know, I consider myself to be a deep enthusiast of nature. When my marathon knees failed me, I took up hiking, cycling, and walking. 
Over the years, I've learned that my yearning to be submerged to nature is not simply because of her beauty, but also because she doesn't discriminate. The wind on a breezy day blows towards me and refreshes my neighbors the same. California rain showers my yard and his without prejudice. The crash of ocean waves soothes my ears and the sand supports my weight in the same way it does every single one of you listening to my story. So I think that's what I would do. I would give us all the brain of nature, the heart and soul of her. As a yogi, that was beautiful. I love that poem. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I would think too, um, that was amazing, by the way. Um, oh, thank I you think so much. To piggyback on that, um, I would, if I could wave my magic wand, it would be to get rid of fear. One of my most favorite poem, poems or, or quotes is by Miriam Will Williamson. And it's something that, you know, I say to myself all the time and I say to my mentees, but our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, and fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, and when we do, we unconsciously give others permission to do the same. So I would say getting rid of fear and letting your light shine. Beautiful. So beautiful. Thank you, ladies. Thank you. So That's much. beautiful. Thank you so much for those gifts there. I mean, physicians and poets, right? I, we didn't we know to start the podcast. It's wonderful. Um, so uh, this has been so great. And Brittany, thanks for um, the guest interviewing and for moderating our panel going forward. And thank you so much to both of you for, for being our guests and sharing your insights. We look forward to talking about them more on the 16th of February. Thank you so much. Thank you, right. thank you, thank you for both. having us. Thank you both. Thanks for listening to the Ethicist Corner podcast, a production of the Kegley Institute of Ethics. To hear future episodes, follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or iHeartRadio.